Welcome to the Eastern Shore. I'm Brock Winstead. Today on the show, the habits of nuns. Not the kind you're thinking of. Every few years, the Pew Research Center does a big survey of Americans' religious affiliations and attitudes. One of the big trends they've been tracking in these surveys, over the past decade in particular, is the increasing number of Americans who say they don't belong to any particular religion. In 2007, the Pew survey found about 15% of Americans in this category. In 2012, it was over 19%. And in last year's survey, over 22%. These people, who don't affiliate with a religion, are sometimes called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. As their numbers have increased, so has the concern about what that increase means. Pew did another survey in 2013 asking people whether they thought the growth of the non-religious in America was good, bad, or didn't much matter. 39% said it didn't matter. 11% said it was a good thing. But 48% of the survey respondents said it was a bad thing that fewer Americans are affiliating with organized religions. They seem to feel like something is being lost. Maybe they're worried that these nuns are going to be like the nihilists from The Big Lebowski. We believe in nothing. We believe in nothing, Lebowski, nothing. And tomorrow we come back and we cut off your... But the nuns are hardly monolithic. Some of them are atheist or agnostic, but that 2012 survey found that 68% of nuns said they believed in God. A fifth of them said they prayed every day. They're doing something, but they're not calling it by a traditional religious name. My guest on today's show saw these survey results coming out and wanted to know more. Kaya Oakes is a writer mostly focusing on religion in American society. She also teaches writing at UC Berkeley. A little while back, Oakes put out a call for nuns who would be willing to talk with her about their religious beliefs and practices. She asked them how they came to find themselves unaffiliated with a religion, and what are their religious practices and beliefs. Also, are they burning down churches and destroying America? She collected about 20 of these diverse stories together in her new book, The Nuns Are All Right. As you might guess from the title, 
Oakes is sounding a cautionary note with the book. Maybe the decline in religious affiliation isn't the blow to American society that so many people seem to think it is. Kaya Oakes and I talked recently about her new book, what she learned from the people she talked to, why she thinks the nuns are all right, and about her own search for a religious home. We also talked about Pope Francis. And if you listened to my last interview with comedian W. Kamau Bell, you might remember the Pope coming up in that conversation as well. I'm not quite ready to change the name of this show to Pope Talk, but we'll see how future interviews go. Here's Kaya Oaks on the Eastern Shore. Kaya Oaks, thank you so much for talking with me today. Your latest book is called The Nuns Are All Right, and that's not N-U-N-S. That would be a very different book. It's (laughs) N-O-N-E-S, Nuns. The Nuns Are All Right. Who are the nuns? Right. So nuns is this kind of great sociological shorthand that's come up in the last five to ten years. Actually, to get technical, it actually was first used in the 70s. But anyway, Pew Research, which does a lot of research into religion, has discovered that in the last um, five to 20 years, somewhere in there, somewhere between 20 and 40 percent or more of people under the age of 40 have chosen not to have a religion. So when you ask them what religion they belong to, they say none, N-O-N-E. But they do believe in God or a higher power, and they often participate in some sort of community-oriented activities. For many of these people, it's not necessarily atheism. No. But they don't fit neatly into uh, any of the typical religious boxes. The traditional religious boxes. Exactly. So it's often people who have kind of mix and match beliefs. You know, there'll be somebody who does meditation and yoga, but is secular Jewish, or um, who goes and participates in Hindu chants, but, you know, was born into a Christian family. So it's often this kind of customization (laughs) of religion, the individualization of religious traditions are being blended together. And atheists would often not consider themselves nuns because they don't believe in a higher power or God. But I did interview a few atheists for the book just to get a sense of what why people are atheists. And in the case of two of the atheists I spoke to, they came from families where there was no religion. So they just figured the next logical step was to be an atheist. So there you go. You write a little bit about the hand-wringing over the rise of the non-believers. Right. That the Pew survey you mentioned and, and others of its type, when they come out with apparently high numbers of people who aren't a member of a typical faith or uh, don't fit into the boxes. Some people wring their hands over that. What are they wringing their hands over, really? What's the What are the worries that people have when they see those poll results? I think most of it comes down to ethics and morals. You know, this idea that people who don't belong to religion are not going to have any kind of a moral structure, uh, and that they're not going to know how to how to act and be in the world. And then also, there's concerns about the loss of community ties which I think is this larger generational question that started in my generation, which is X. Um, The idea that people were becoming more individualistic and therefore that they didn't care about the people around them more. I'd like to think that Generation X proved that not to be true, but we'll wait and see whether we've done that or not. But with with the millennials and then Generation Z now that's coming behind them, 
and who knows what's next after that. But but the concern of, of boomers and older is often that if you don't have a, a religious tradition, you don't have that framework of, you know, here are morals, here are ways to be with other people, which is pretty emphatically not true in when we see it acted out that that most uh, nuns um, are interested in community, are interested in service, are charitable, but they just choose not to do it within that religious framework. So that was the hand-wringing was like, they're all going to be lost souls. There's some element there of um, every generation looks at the younger generations and, and feels like the world is coming apart because there's a lot there that they don't recognize. You set about trying to get to know this not at all monolithic group of nuns, looking at the survey, seeing these large, apparently large numbers, and trying to kind of take that word and make it flesh, as it were, and go out and meet these people. Why did you want to get to know these people better? Right. Well, I'm, I always tell people that I'm a religion writer, not a religious writer. There's a big difference there. I think that religion writers might be religious people, but we're interested in the phenomenon of religion and, and what that means. And so this is sort of like if we're really entering a post-religious era, rather than just looking at surveys or doing surveys, I I think that in academia there's this tendency to sort of rely too much on data to solve all of our problems and to say rather than one-on-one, you know, rather than doing 12 really long in-depth interviews, I'm going to do 500 short interviews, right? The problem then is you get this watered-down picture. You get a a very watered-down idea of why people think the way they do or believe the way they do. So the surveys are the framework, but within that, if I didn't reach out to individuals, I felt like I was going to be missing the whole story. Now, granted, the individuals that responded shaped the direction of the book, so it's not by no means is it an objective sampling. So it's there's definitely a degree of um, this is sort of the pool, right, of like the people that I got. And I, I didn't know most of them. So how, how did you find these people? I use social media, right? Like how do we do everything these days? <laughs> uh, I wrote a blog post and um, I circulated it on Twitter and Facebook. And I got um, within 24 hours of posting it, I had 100 responses. I ended up winnowing down to interviewing about 50 people. Out of that, I went really in-depth with about 20. And the reason I did that is because, again, I wanted to really focus on individuals. And if I did it that way, I could tell their whole story. So rather than just, you know, I lost my religion or my parents lost it, you know, what actually happened? And what was the emotional side of that? What was the psychological side? And then projecting out from that, what's the sociological impact? Long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> Basically, it just made more sense um, to do it that way to me. There's a number of books that are more academic on this topic that are about surveys and stats. And I figure if people want those, they can go find those books. But um, I hadn't read anything that really looked at it in a one-on-one way. Your book is, in a sense, preaching a gospel of reassurance that, well, from the title on down, that the nuns are all right and that people are you know, living ethical lives, just trying to do good in the world uh, and, and often succeeding, but it's complicated. 
people's ways into or out of faith or into or out of a religious practice are diverse. Um, what are some of the common threads, though, that tied these nuns together that you talked to? Well, one thing I noticed, which is ironic, I guess, because I'm a college writing instructor, is that oftentimes people hit the issue of what they do and don't believe in college, um, whether that's because they are out on their own for the first time or encountering classes like philosophy or even, you know, Western Civ, so to speak, or even writing classes, uh, even if they go to a secular school, they're hitting these questions of like, who am I? What do I believe? Who are my friends? It's a big part of that. So a lot of people, and if they didn't go to college, maybe they moved out, you know, when they were a late teenager. Again, it's about first time out on your own. Uh, that was one thing everybody seemed to have in common was that late teens, early 20s is when this started. Another thing was that often they were responding to something about the beliefs that they rejected. Like if a young woman that I spoke to was raised Muslim, like she didn't like the idea that everybody who's not Muslim goes to hell, right? And she still identifies as Muslim, but she no longer she's trying to redefine practicing, right? And similar to some Jewish people, Christians, etc., there was always something that they were reacting against that pushed them out. There wasn't anything drawing them in. It was being pushed out, and it was in reaction to something dogmatic or struck or something in the literature or something, just something, you know. So those two things... A lot of the people you interviewed talked about seeking their own understanding of God or spirituality. Uh, But for many of them, it's not just about seeking a faith. They're searching for a community, too, searching for a sense of belonging. I couldn't always tell which one was more important if one was. The two seem to really, really, really go hand in hand. Yeah, they're pretty inextricably intertwined. and, And I think that you'll find that... There, I did choose also to portray some people who do continue to practice a religion, but they do so in some sort of non-traditional way. And in those cases, that they that they too long for the same sense of community, but something is keeping them from fully participating, whether that's their sexual orientation, gender, stuff like that. Is that generational too? Did people in prior generations not have to search for community in the same way? Well, if you look back maybe 40, 50 years, so the 60s changed a lot, obviously, but a lot of things have changed about the way we live. So in urban enclaves, you know, Chicago, New York, Boston, San Francisco, L.A. to a certain extent, there were community was really based on your neighborhood was people like you so they were religiously the same they're ethnically the same and um and everybody would go to the same you know house of worship so to speak and so that's fallen apart white flight out of cities into the suburbs changed a lot of that And so when cities became more multicultural, you know, the religious groups changed. Anyway, so people didn't have those same kind of, like, you didn't do the same thing your parents did, right? And I can even say in my own family that 
my family was very traditionally Irish Catholic and and my parents in the 60s got interested in things people got interested in the 60s and my mom drifted away from religion and remains non-religious today as a result of that we didn't have the same religious upbringing that our parents had so it was two generations right so it was greatest generation to my parents are like pre-boomer but close to that to generation x it's lost right so the community ties that my parents had everybody on the block was irish or italian and had five or more kids everybody like you don't see that anywhere now maybe in new york or boston but maybe not anymore so we're much more kind of we're much more separated and families are smaller so this there's kind of taken for granted ways of finding community in your neighborhood etc not really there as much anymore for most people and so people do have to make their own and the thing is now that geographically we're so spread out and also people under 50 we have to move around a lot because of financial reasons and so our friends get spread out and so a lot of our community is online we don't know yet whether that's good community or bad but it's what we've got to work with and so a lot of the people I interviewed for the book were talking about finding their communities online and finding you know, like similar groups of people and like realizing that there were other people out there in the world that were like them and had those doubts and questions. But I mean, ultimately, like when you think about it, Karen Armstrong writes about this a lot in her books that that God is a collective invention. And, you know, whether you one believes in God or not, God would not exist unless more than one person believed in God. So it's like we had to have civilization first, and then we got God, right? Because we had to have other people believing the same things as we did. So it's very tribal. And I think that that's what people are ultimately searching for is is that tribal sort of feeling. And that tribalism cuts both ways. You wrote about people who were, in some senses, driven from the faith community they'd been a part of or felt the need to leave because they didn't feel at home and weren't welcome anymore. Part of what your book is about is the ability of religious institutions to accommodate diversity and to accommodate doubt and critique from within. You wrote some about, you know, what does it mean to be really Catholic? That splintering of traditional community in religion seems to have its mirrors in other places. I think there are people who think about political parties in the same way. Well, I can't be a member of the Republican Party because I don't believe all those things. And the antidote to that is sometimes described as kind of big tent Republicanism or whatever it is. Are there attempts to build big tents for people, to bring them back into institutions? Yeah, I mean, I think some 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 religions and are are waking up and realizing that if they don't stretch the tent <laughs> pegs <laughs> that it's really going to be a problem. The thing is that there's some mixed results in this. Um in the Christian tradition denominations like the Episcopalians and the United Church of Christ and more recently the Presbyterians that did things like recognize same-sex marriage 
it didn't get them a bum rush of new members, you know. Um, it didn't all of a sudden send thousands of people streaming through the doors. Uh, similarly in Judaism, you know, Reform Judaism, some of the rules changed, you know, but it didn't send everybody running back. So although the tents may grow, <laughs> and now this week is is going to be a pain in the ass for some of us because the Pope is here and I've been nonstop getting emails and this and that about him. And the thing is that he appeals to a lot of people, but, and he has this kind of more universe. There's a story in the Times today actually saying Pope Francis appeals to people who are not religious. And the thing is, the reason people like him is because his message is a big message. It's it's social justice message. Has that brought thousands of people streaming back to Catholicism? No. I mean, the most recent statistics from Pew, you know, are just awful in terms of numbers. It's like the church is continuing to shrink. So, so the tent gets bigger. It tries to accommodate more people. It doesn't necessarily work. So the big question is, you know, does that mean that we're moving beyond these traditional models of religion then? What are some of the alternative models that people are practicing, people you talk to for the book, and finding their own spiritual home in? I think people are much more interested in, in grassroots versions or or kind of low commitment stuff, like go to a meditation class once a week. Buddhism is really popular with um, nuns and, and with younger people in general. And there's a lot of reasons for that, partially because it's not a religion that demands a lot of creed. You know, you don't have to have, you don't have to believe everything that Buddhist, the Buddha taught to be a Buddhist. You just have to want to be a Buddhist. <laughs> and also, it, it accommodates um, both theists and non-theists. So you can be an atheist, you can be a Catholic, you can be a Jew, you can be a Buddhist. But most people don't participate in it to the extent of converting, quote-unquote. People are looking at kind of these lower commitment models. Or like DIY kind of things. I was just reading about this place in Brooklyn. I, I tried to write about them, but I had a hard time communicating with them. Um, but it's called, they call it a dinner church. So it's actually run by, I think, Episcopalians. And it's just a bunch of people have dinner together and they have sort of like a mass or like some sort of religious service as part of the dinner. And then they all go out and volunteer together. Mm. So that's like the kind of low key. You don't have to go to a church. You can do it where you are, like at your friend's house. or um, That's the kind of model that I think uh, appeals more. Um, I talked to a bunch of people in D.C. who do something called guerrilla, as in guerrilla fighter, communion, where, again, it's just a bunch of people who are sort of vaguely Catholic. They get together, they have a potluck, and then they talk about religion, and that's it. It's not a service. And so those kind of models appeal. It's the sort of difference, the metaphor I think I use in the book or maybe used in an article since I wrote the book, is it's it's less of a straight jacket and more of a loose garment that your religious identity becomes something you wear loosely and it doesn't rein you in. 
Um, so that appeals a lot to a lot of people. You don't consider yourself a nun now, but there was a time in your life when you would have identified in that group. And so I think yeah. you seem to identify very much with the, the, the struggles that a lot of the people you profiled have. Yeah, and while I was you know, in the process of writing this book, a lot of things kind of fell apart in my own religious life. I spent, so I was raised Catholic. I, I left the church very deliberately at about age 18. Can we talk about why? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote a book about that too. <laughs> I just write books about everything. Um, but my my father died, and I I hit this kind of like really d- tough like kind of like what it's all about, and you know, which hey, guess what? All the people I interviewed were about the same age, and I went off to college, and you know, I took all these philosophy classes and started to see weird things about the world that I hadn't thought about. And I also grew up here in the Bay Area, which was, uh, I was the only Catholic at my high school, went to an alternative high school in Berkeley called Maybach High School. There were no, there was no religion taught at the school except as history. So I was drifting from it. And I didn't believe, I also was very involved in feminism and in the LGBTQ community, and I didn't see uh, any way to be Catholic and be those things. But in my late 30s, I sort of got interested in it again, sort of made my way back to it through a particular parish that was very welcoming of people like myself and who were, had a lot of doubts and questions. Anyway, I start writing this book, and the priests at our parish were asked to leave because they had been too accommodating to um, to people, and the bishop didn't want them there anymore. So I sort of was like, what the heck, you know? So while I was conducting these interviews, I was very honest with the people I was talking to, and I said, you know, I identify as Catholic, but... I'm not sure what I believe right now and whether I really want to be in that religion anymore. (laughs) So most recently, now that I've moved back to Oakland, after a couple years in Richmond, I've been attending church once in a while at a a black Catholic church and, and having a really deep spiritual experience there because it's very prayer the community is very involved and I, I really like it a lot so so there's that's where I am right now so I'm sort of like one foot in one foot out but I think that's not unique um, I think that that's fairly common generationally and um, and especially to to people on the left you know that when they belong to a religion they, they tend to be on the margins of it you identify as Catholic mm-hmm. but as kind of a critical Catholic. You are actively critiquing the church from within, and you have your own ongoing struggles with that. And you mentioned, you know, we're talking in a week when uh, Pope Francis is visiting the United States for the first time, and this pope has received some attention for (laughs) his apparently, in some cases, more liberal positions on certain issues. But as someone who is a Catholic but struggles with some of the traditional strictures of the church, do you see him that way? That's a good question. I mean, I don't think, I think he's interesting because he's he's not really changing much, you know what I mean? What is changed 
is the tone. Um, if you remember the last couple of popes, they were they were European. They're interested in doctrine, especially the last one. He was a he was a theologian, so he was really interested in doctrine, and um, and he was German, and he had a certain way of talking and expressing himself that was not very warm and affectionate. Francis is Latin American, and you know if you know, as we know, living in the Bay Area, we're surrounded by people from Latin America. They are warm and friendly and outgoing, and um, and he is all of those things. But he hasn't actually changed very much. You know what I mean? Like the message is the same message that's in the Gospels. He's trying to get the church back to that. I was reading on my lunch break today, the address he gave to the bishops, and he was telling them to be more pastoral, to dialogue with the people, stop telling people what to do, start listening to what people need. That kind of message is super welcome, you know, and really needed in the American church. Um, has Have I seen evidence that he's changing the church on the parish level? No. I mean, frankly, I haven't been to Mass in a while, but... But when I do go, I don't see, I do hear the priests talking about him, you know, in a very admiring way. But I don't see the churches really acting as he is acting them to ask yet. So it hasn't changed yet. Your own spiritual seeking Mm -hmm. sounds like a, a, a not concluded process. You don't really feel like you have settled once and for all where you belong religiously. No, and I think that that's something that we're going to see more and more. You know, I do identify as Catholic, but I, I, and I think I always will. My family's Catholic. It's a tradition I belong to. And, and Pew, in their most recent survey, they talked a lot about cultural Catholics, and I write about that in the book, too, um, that Catholics are becoming more like Jews in some ways, although, of course, without the ethnicity, but but that we are, Catholics are becoming more people who identify with traditions without necessarily being in the religion. Mm. And, um, and that's been coming for a while. You know, that's a very American way of being Catholic. Mm. It's a very American way of being everything, right? We were actually just talking about this in class today with my students. They, they're, I, they're from all over the world. You know, it's Berkeley. And one of them said, what, what does it mean to be American anyway? There is no such thing. That's like a target. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the target of Catholicism, you know, the cafeteria, all the pejorative ways. And, but... For example, my sister is married to a, a guy from Berkeley who is Jewish, and the the kids, they've decided to raise the kids Jewish. And so my niece is having a bat mitzvah in a couple of weeks, but it's the weekend before one of my friends is being ordained as a deacon, as a Jesuit, right? And so my life is like, I'm going to go to a bat mitzvah, and then I'm going to go to the Catholic cathedral, and then... I'll go to a friend's wedding. It's a Hindu wedding. And I'm I'm cool with that. So I am like a lot of the people I spoke to. And this gets back to that um, mm-hmm. generational kind of exploding of community that you right. talked about where you no longer are just within a bubble of people who look like you and think just like you and practice religion in the same way as you would. Many of us do live in, kind of, in bubbles of various kinds. But right. it's increasingly common for people – 
Gen X and younger to not just know people of different religions, but to be close to, to be in the lives of people in other religions and to kind of have to make a certain peace with with that diversity and, and what it means for the supposed primacy of one's own religious faith. Well, it's, it's hard for, you know, someone to say, well, I'm a practicing whatever and everyone else who doesn't believe this is going to go to hell if some of your actual best friends don't happen to believe that. Right, exactly. And um, and I think we see that every day here at the university, you know, that those questions about, like, what does it mean to live and not even multicultural anymore? It's like poly, whatever we are beyond that. Yeah. You know, we're, again, like today in class, like it's America's not a melting pot. It's more like a Cuisinart or a blender because bits and pieces of everything get mixed together and they don't melt. So they, they get blended. And and it's true that we're less attracted. I think that, that we generationally, uh, you know, people under 50 are less interested in judging other people for their beliefs unless they are fundamentalists in which case judge away a lot of the people that you talked to in the book were pretty close to you generationally we're sitting in your office at uc berkeley you teach writing you don't teach religion here but you are alive to the spiritual life around you your students and just that you see on campus you write a little bit about that in the in the book. A little bit, yeah. Are you seeing continued generational change between, say, your generation and your students in this approach to religion? Um, yeah, yes and no. I, I would say that there's a lot of complexities to religion in, in here at Berkeley. I mean, A, because like it's a secular school, so obviously Berkeley doesn't it has a religious studies program that just got canceled, actually. They announced that they're not going to offer a religious studies major anymore. I think that was due to the fact that there wasn't enough enrollment. (laughs) So Ah. that tells you something right there. Yeah. On the other hand, if you walk through Sproul at noon on a weekday, you will see all the evangelical Christian groups and, like, there's a lot of Christian groups. There's Hillel, the Jewish group. There's the is- Islamic students. But religion is alive here on campus, and we have a new student union going up, and it has a dedicated prayer space for for Muslim students who need to pray five times a day, for any other student who needs to pray X number of times. The thing is, though, that some of our younger people that are religious, they get very rigid and they retreat into these rigid forms of religion because of this fear of secularization. Like they see this huge secular culture all around them and their religion becomes very um, uptight, for lack of a better word. But that's really a small minority. Like we see it in the Catholic Church, these young conservative Catholics who want to have the Latin mass and they think Benedict was a better Pope than Francis. and But there's not that many of them. They're just very vocal. And because one of them is Ross Duthat, who writes for the New York Times, everybody thinks that's what young Catholics are like, but they're really not that many of them. And you would see the same thing, I'm sure, in Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, whatever, that there are rigid that there are younger people who get very uptight but you know there really aren't that many of them 
I really don't think that statistically they're a huge number. You end the book on a, a kind of a question mark about the future of faith. I think the caution you're sounding is is telling people don't look at the statistics and assume that it means the end of religion as you know it or the end of religion as a force in society. If you were to hazard a guess, though, what do you think, based on these conversations that you've had with people, is the future of religion in American society? What does that look like? I did deliberately not come to a conclusion about that in the book because I don't think we know yet. And I think that it's really dangerous to project especially about a topic that's very explosive like this one. But my gut instincts, you know, like when I look at the people I talk to, when I look at the statistics, when I look at the surveys, when I look at my own community and the city I live in and where I work, is that religion is going to become more individualistic. It's just the way it is. And that this access we have to information, this amazing ability to look up anything, you know, instantly at any time is going to expose people to more and more different kinds of belief and that people are going to be attracted to more than one, you know. So my gut instinct is that people are going to start I don't want to say customizing or like making mixtapes. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can go buy one out in front of um, out in front of amoeba. Yeah. Like you go buy a religion like out on the sidewalk. <laughs> or but but yeah, that's it though. That really is it. That we're each going to kind of come to our own conclusions, and then we'll have we'll still have communities, you know, but they'll be more based around things like like our, hopefully our neighborhoods or the environment or, you know, whatever our passion is. And and religion will be a secondary thing to that. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that that's just the way society seems to be going, you know. I do worry that the individualistic thing, the downside of that is losing traditions, you know, that are very, very old. So I, I really look to to groups that are doing things, this group in San Francisco called The Kitchen, where they have Shabbat, you know, dinner together every Friday, um, but it's not a synagogue, you know, so they keep this Shabbat tradition, which is older than anything Christian, but it's very informal, you know, but maybe Christians will come up with similar things they can do. Maybe they can keep um, the food traditions, whatever Christian foods are. But, yeah, so that's, I think that, yeah, there's a danger, definitely, of, like, the selfishness, Mm -hmm. the kind of self-involved thing. But I just spend so much time around millennials and and people younger than that and, like, so much time around people my own age. I don't think that they're selfish. I think that's a a false perception. I think that they're... They're not narcissistic in the same way that, that, frankly, that boomers are, but we mm. won't get into that. The people you've talked to that, that have children, how are people tackling this, in a sense, the problem of how do we imbue our children with a sense of belief about the world mm-hmm. or with a sense of ethics or a sense of tradition that religion so often did apply in the past, did supply yeah. in the past, rather, sorry. 
Well, I give you the example of this woman I spoke to. She um, she was raised in a kind of, but she was half Pentecostal, you know, half kind of Episcopalian. So these two sides of Christianity: one that's very uh, outgoing and vibrant, and one that's kind of more traditional and uptight. Sorry, Episcopalians, let me call you uptight. Anyway, um, she she just lost interest in participating, you know, in Christianity. She's Christian mindset, as she puts it. Anyway, she and her twin sister moved back to this Midwestern state where they'd grown up, bought some land, you know, adopted two kids jointly from their community that the parents needed someone to adopt these kids. It's an open adoption. And in place of religion, what they're giving the kids is um, Wendell Berry, you know, that sense of, like, they're caretakers of the land, that, you know, Wendell Berry's he's religious, but his writing is about the environment and stewardship of the earth and and the spirituality of ecology and stuff like that. And so this woman, you know, in the place of taking her kids to church every day, she's, like, trying to give the kids that as a faith practice is like land stewardship, ecology, and also community. You know, they're adopted, so she's trying to integrate things from their um, original, uh, their family, their birth family's tradition, too. So that's one example, but in other cases, the parents would say things like, I'm going to let the kids choose, you know what I mean? Like when it's an interfaith marriage, like let the kids decide for themselves. Like when they get to be old enough where they're asking these questions, let's give them everything we got. And then they get to decide what, like if they want a bat mitzvah or do they want, you know, something else, um, and you and sometimes they'll try to do both, but oftentimes they're the parents I spoke to are very much letting the children be in charge of those choices. So that'll be interesting too. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you yeah. know, where, whereas the norm used to be, I suppose, that Catholics begat Catholics yeah. and Jews begat Jews. Now it seems like. Uh, seekers begat seekers in a sense. Well, people didn't intermarry until you sure. know more recently and and now that people do um of course like yeah you're right it is just people sort of letting the kids quest on their own and some people i spoke to who grew up in non-religious families talked about feeling like they're never going to find that one thing and being okay with that Mm. by the time this comes out your book will have been released but it's not as though you are done addressing these questions, you write frequently for various paper and online publications about religion in society. What are the questions that are kind of motivating you right now? Um, I have two big obsessions right now, and um, one is uh, is gentrification in, in, in a larger sense, like not just... Um, like where we live, gentrification, which is an urgent problem, Um, but gentrification of, in other ways, like cultural gentrification, you know, the erasure of culture. In some ways, religion's a big part of that, because if religion's disappearing, you know, we're losing traditions and culture. 
as people of color leave cities too, if they take churches with them, that means social services go to like food and and for you know care for the poor um what's going to replace that so i'm interested in that connection between you know gentrification and religion and then also um the idea of vocation like in the past people would talk about being called by god to do something so again in a post-religious society you know like how do we know and then, too, because all of us have five different jobs, right? And I count myself among that. And my my husband, you know, is a musician who has a day job. And I'm a writer who teaches. And nobody I know is one thing. Yeah. So how do we know what our vocation is? Because the vocation is literally means it's a calling. So how do we suss that out economically, spiritually? You know, I'm really interested in that question right now. So, stay tuned. Uh, right now, what everybody wants me to write about, though, is the Pope. <laughs> Do you have any interest in writing about the Pope? I just got asked to turn something out on um, the Pope and the canonization of Junipero um, Serra. Uh, so, as a Californian, my sure. fourth generation Californian, you know, I my mom works in the Native American community. I was taught to grow up and just hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, how are people in California responding versus in D.C. where it's taking place? It's like these Native leaders traveled all the way to D.C. to protest, and, you know, they'll probably get kicked out of the church. So there you go. Well, uh, I wish you the best of luck in, in chasing those obsessions. Thanks. And with The Nuns Are All Right. Thank you so much for talking with me about the book and your own spiritual seeking. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, Johnny, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. That was Kaya Oaks. You can find her new book, The Nuns Are All Right, online and in bookstores near you. If you can't find it in your local bookstore, I bet they can order it for you. Ordering books is like their whole thing. You can also find out more about Kaya's other books and writing on her website, oakstown.org. That's O-A-K-E-S town.org. She's also on Twitter at Kaya Oaks, K-A-Y-A-O-A-K-E-S. Kaya did end up, as she put it, churning something out about Pope Francis, an essay that ran on the website of Foreign Policy magazine about the Pope's potential impact on immigration policy. You can investigate the religious practices of this show, which is still not called Pope Talk, at tespodcast.com. You can listen to previous interviews there, subscribe to the show. You can also subscribe to the show with iTunes or Stitcher. No searching needed, though. You can find links to both of those at tespodcast.com. This has been The Eastern Shore. I have been, and thanks to your continued prayers and occasional sacrifices, continue to be Brock Winstead. Thank you for listening.
to put you out of that ditch You're out of luck, you're out of luck Ship is sinking, the ship is sinking The ship is sinking There's a leak, there's a leak in the boiler room The poor, the lame, the blind Un rêve, 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 un rêve